There is no route back for a Scottish Labour government that doesn't run through the northeast of Scotland. And to be blunt, we've got to do the hard work. From fears of electoral oblivion to claims of being the next First Minister of Scotland, Anas Sarwar is clearly not short of ambition. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Stushi, the politics podcast from DC Thompson. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this show we're focusing on the man of the moment, Scottish Labour leader Anas Sarwar. The Glasgow MSP was thrown into the deep end a year ago, with just weeks to go before the National Holyrood election. He'll be tested again in a few weeks at the council elections, and over three days from the 8th of March, he'll be fronting the party's first conference in person since the pandemic struck two years ago. And I sat down with Courier editor David Clegg for this one-off interview about the party's fortunes after years in the wilderness. He's bluntly confident about securing what would be a major victory in four years or so at the next election, but he's candid about the route back. You heard him in that clip at the start, accepting there is more to Scotland than holding on to a central belt vote. And he reveals more about his experience of racism in this country. It's at times a personal interview, asking us to think more widely about the kind of society we are building around us. David Clegg started this illuminating conversation by asking if he thinks enough progress has been made in his first year in charge. Um, it's certainly been a, a hard shift, but I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it. I think people can see um, that I'm generally enjoying it. Um, I'm throwing everything at it in terms of uh, energy, but also uh, new thinking and new ideas. And I think we have made progress. Um, I think that progress is uh, probably hard to judge in a public sense uh, in terms of, the, you know, we've had obviously the Scottish Parliament election, which was 10 weeks after I took over. Um, and the objective in that um, election as you know, was to stop Armageddon. We were in a really, really bad place. We were looking like we were going to be decimated. People will remember that the the week before I became leader, the Greens were even predicting that you know Labour was going to come fourth in the election, never mind uh, third in the election. Uh, there was an opinion poll that had us at 14%. So we really had to stop the hemorrhage uh, and stop Armageddon. And I think we successfully did that in the election campaign. And then I think what, we've, what we also managed to do in the election campaign was to demonstrate to people a, that sense of a, a new energy and that the Scottish Labour Party was was changing and that people could look at us again and, and also, frankly, detoxifying much of uh, our identity as well. So we followed the election campaign um, with a, a really long period of time where we had to sort the organisation out. I didn't realise how hollowed out the organisation uh, was. When you say hollowed out, what, what, what do you mean by that? So look, I, I always understood that we were in a difficult, difficult place politically. You could see that from um, the polls. Um, I always knew we had challenges organisationally, uh, but I didn't understand the true scale um, of those challenges. Um, there, there was no meaningful fundraising operation. I've, I've said before around this, the scale of the. Of the fundraising task that was ahead of us, there was there was no real meaningful digital capacity um, and digital outlook, and you know political parties have to be digital first organisations. So we, we've done a, a really good job, I think, in the last year in terms of building that capacity and being a digital first organisation. We've still got some work to do in that, and I'll be setting out some more of that conference this week. Uh, but but we're making progress around that. Our organisational capacity had been hollowed out. We've now. I think rebuilt some of our organisational capacity, and then the culture. I mean, we, the, so people talk a lot about the culture of factionalism that has dominated the Labour Party for the last four or five years, if not longer. 
Actually, in Scotland, we had a different problem. We've got a different problem. I'm, I'm not worried about the culture of factionalism. We don't have the luxury of factionalism in Scotland. <laughs> the culture we have is the culture of defeatism. This idea that it can only ever go one way, we're managing the decline of the Labour Party, is just not something that I'm willing to accept, um, and I'm, I'm not in this for that. So, Has, me- has membership gone up in the last year? Uh, that's a very good question. I can come back to you on the membership uh, figures. I don't know on hand. I don't have the answer to that question. Um, but I think if you if you look at where our support base is, um, if you look at where we were a year ago, where we are now, I think we're in a better place. I think if you look at our likability, I think we've made progress in that. Our challenge is how do we turn our likability into electability, and that means being credible. So how we have an effective forward-looking organization, how we talk about the future, we don't talk about the past, how we talk about the people and the country, not about ourselves. The Labour Party loves nothing better than talking about itself. And what you'll see this week at conference is a determination for the Labour Party to be rooted in the future, about what the future of Scotland looks like and what that means for our children and what it means for our public services and fundamentally what it means for our economy and our economic prospects going into the future. Because quite often it feels like we have an economic-free debate here in Scotland. I don't think we have the luxury of that. And that's why you'll see that change in mindset and culture coming through at the conference this week. You said Scotland's future there. And one of the issues that the Labour Party has is you say Scotland's future and people in Scotland automatically think about Scotland's constitutional future whenever you put that phrase together. I think maybe the the political bubble thinks about the referendum or constitutional future. The reality is when you talk to people on the street, when you talk about their future, they're thinking about their children's education. They're thinking about their prospects at work. They're thinking about the future of their community. They're thinking about the future of their family. They're thinking about the future of our NHS. They're thinking about the future of social care services. They're thinking about the future opportunities for Scotland on on the world stage, how it punches above its weight. These are all issues that go way beyond our constitutional argument. And I just think um, we have a real opportunity in Scotland to own the future, uh, not in a constitutional argument sense, but actually how we're going to change people's lives. If that is people's priorities, as you've just described them, it feels like the Labour Party should be in tune with that. It's that if that's what people are worried about, it's what the Labour Party tend to talk about. So why are people not voting for you? Look, if, 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 if your priorities are aligned in the way that you're suggesting? No, no, I, I, take, the, I take the central point you're making, um, but I think there's a few issues that underlie that. One is We've not been good enough. And when you're not good enough, you don't deserve to win and people don't vote for you. So um, there's, we, have, we, have under, we have come through 20 years of decline as a Scottish Labour Party. And I am not going to pretend that I have the silver bullet that's going to overcome 20 years of decline in one year. This is a long-term project to rebuild, renew um, the Labour Party here in Scotland. So th- that, that's one part about the longer-term relationship. So if you think about a lot of people's relationship with the Labour Party, it really was that. It really was a relationship. And for a lot of people, that relationship broke off. And the idea that we can mend that straight away or bring people back straight away is just not going to happen. So that's one part. The second part is credibility. We have got to be credible. And I think even my harshest critics would say um, that we have brought a credibility back to the Labour Party here in Scotland. But how we build on that credibility is really important. And then we need to talk about the new ideas and the new thinking. So what is the new ideas that can engage the the public and demonstrate that we can uh, change the country? How do we then also demonstrate that we have an effective uh, team that you could trust with your vote, trust with your support and trust in government? So that competence question, how do we answer that competence question? I think that's also a longer term 
uh, objective. And these are all things that we need. And then the final point, sorry, um, David, I should have said, is people. So the there is no top-down resurgence of the Scottish Labour Party. This is not about picking one leader at the top and, you know, giving them a free hand um, to do what they like, when they like, and just hope things turn around. Um, we have got to, from a grassroots up, rebuild the Labour Party. And that means identifying those relationships, those individuals, those people, that proper engagement strategy so we can get people who are real community champions, who are rebuilding the Labour Party from the grassroots up. Um, pandemic's not helped in that endeavour, given sure. that it's really hard to get out there and engage. Coming through that pandemic, I think we have a real opportunity now to get out there around the country, demonstrate that energy, build those relationships, build those networks. So I make a direct plea, actually, to people listening to this podcast. I don't care how you previously voted. I don't care what your previous views were on the Constitution. If you have an idea that can help change our country, share it with us. If you know someone in your local community that you think would be a great local champion that you'd be proud to support, tell us who it is, and I promise you we'll get in contact uh, and we'll take those ideas on board. And if those people are listening to that plea and they're, yes, supporters, if they support independence, or even if they just believe that the constitutional question is something that's a priority for them, what is your answer on that question? What is the Labour Party's message on that? So I, I think it's really important that politicians are straight up and honest. Uh, and, you know, that might sound like a novel concept, but actually given everything that's happening in uh, Westminster, given everything that's happening over the last few years, it, it does feel like you have to say that again, that actually honesty and transparency and truth matters. I don't support independence. Um, I don't think it's the right future for our country. I don't think it would it would achieve the many things that people, I think, with good intentions want to see happen here in Scotland around social policy, around economic policy. I don't believe that is best served by leaving the United Kingdom. And if I don't believe it, I'm not going to pretend to someone that I do. So um, how do we come up with the ideas that can demonstrate that Scotland can punch above its weight while still being part of the United Kingdom not getting consumed by a constitutional argument that actually doesn't change anyone's life and just keeps an endless, endless debate on a binary choice, which frankly suits the SNP and the Tories. They would love Scotland to be in this forever binary debate that stops the SNP having to actually deliver for people across the country in terms of uh, being, in, being actually in government and being in control of so many of our public services. And it actually stops the, uh, the Tories coming up with any ideas and allows them to try and fulfil their dream of just staying in second place. I think Scotland deserves better than that. I think we deserve an alternative path. And I accept what I'm trying to sell is not very easy at the moment, given that binary choice in the country. But... I believe this. I believe it's the right thing for our country and I'm going to make the case. I'm going to do the hard work. I'm going to do the uh, pound the streets as necessary. I'm going to put the energy that's necessary because I believe this is the right thing for our country and I want to take people with us on that journey. Do you think you're going to be the next First Minister of Scotland? Yes, and um, certainly after the next election. I can't speak for before that, but so I'll give you a straight up answer in terms of yes, that has to be our ambition because you have to want to win. You, 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 talk, you, you talked about credibility there. Is it a credible ambition? Yeah, so so uh, that, that's exactly the point I was going to make is that I think it's important that we, you have to want to win in order to be able to win. I think anyone looking at it right now would say, I don't see how the Labour Party managed to achieve that if the election was tomorrow. Mm. But the election is not tomorrow. We have an election just over, so four years and two months away. 
we have a huge opportunity. If you think how much politics has changed in the last two years, never mind the last four years or the last 10 years, politics can fundamentally change over the next four years. And my job is to try and build a credible alternative here in Scotland and root it in the future. And I think if we can do that, then we have a chance of winning the next election. I don't want to go into an election in four and a bit years' time and be in the, be in the terrible situation I was in, in the election last year. The election last year, we, we allowed a free pass to the SNP because we hadn't done the work over the previous years to be in a credible position to say Labour's got a chance of winning this election. And that in itself, I think, helped the SNP because they, they didn't have anyone that was truly challenging them to compete in that election campaign. We can't allow that to happen in the next four years. I was in the extraordinary position of interviewing Nicola Sturgeon whenever even her opposition were not saying that she wasn't going to win. It was an, ele it was an election where everyone conceded the result for a vote. Exactly the point I'm making. Exactly the point I'm making. And that is unforgivable. Um, and it is unforgivable. Your reaction there about being credible and asking me a question about if we're going to be able to compete in four years and two months' time. If I had said to you 10 weeks out from the election when I became leader and we were at that place we were in the polls, if you'd asked me that question and I'd said to you, yes, no one would have believed me. It wouldn't have been credible. I would have been clearly looked like someone that was, um, I, I was going to say rec being too recreational with substances, but I shouldn't be saying that, um, but, but, was, but, but clearly wasn't in the right um, frame of mind. And therefore, I was honest. I was honest that that wasn't an election Labour could win. It wasn't an election where we could elect a Labour first minister. And I thought it was important to be honest uh, going into that election. I don't want us to be in that position in four years' time. If in four years' time we're still scrapping um, for credibility, never mind electability, then um, this project is, is not fulfilling what it's, what it's meant to do. I, I want us to be in four years' time competing to win the election. Okay, so you, you've said that you believe you'll be First Minister of Scotland. Will Keir Starmer be Prime Minister of the UK? Yes. And look, uh, let me heavily caveat both those questions. Uh, and, and this is where the heavy caveat comes. The Labour Party's got a choice. We can choose to just wait and hope that the SNP deserve to lose and therefore we win. We can wait and hope that the Conservative Party deserve to lose and then hopefully we win. Actually, that's not good enough, and actually that probably won't work. Yes, the SNP and the Tories need to deserve to lose, but actually we need to deserve to win. And we the reason why we have lost countless elections is because we have not deserved to win. And I want us to have done the work necessary to deserve to win the next UK general election and to deserve to win the next Scottish Parliament election. So on, on the Keir Starmer question, I, I, I think, yes, Keir Starmer can be Prime Minister of the uh, United Kingdom. I think that's uh, people can see that much, much more clearly now, given what's happening around um, Boris Johnson, around Partygate. Uh, but we can't just wait for Boris Johnson to fail. Um, and that's why I think you've seen already from Keir, he's demonstrating a seriousness, he's demonstrating a competence, he's demonstrating a statesman-like uh, approach, uh, and he's setting out the ideas about how we build the future of the United Kingdom. So loads of progress made, but we've still got work to do. And let Given me tell you why that's important. six months of let, let Boris me, Johnson. Okay, sorry, just one second. Sorry, sorry David, just one second. Uh, the, um, why that matters, I think, in Scotland is... The psychological difference that people believing Labour can win again or Labour actually winning again is huge in Scotland. We have spent almost the last 12 years where people in Scotland just didn't believe Labour could win. And you're talking at a UK level here? 
at a UK level. Um, and, and and probably probably in many ways and and some of that at a Scottish level too. Um, and when you don't believe someone can win, that in itself is a barrier. So in those general elections in Scotland, the debate doesn't be doesn't become about who can replace the Tories. The debate becomes about who is best placed to oppose the Tories. I want us to have done the hard work so we get into that next general election where we can say directly to people, let's not just vote based on who you want to oppose the Tories. Let's vote on how we replace the Tories and only Labour can do that. You've set out some of the things that you think you need to do in Scotland. What needs to be done at a UK level that isn't being done at the minute? It strikes me that given the six months that Boris Johnson has had, the fact that he's almost universally loathed, and has had headlines and that's just in his own party david is it yeah. <laughs> and, and has had headlines like no other prime minister i can remember in living memory in the last six months yet keir, keir starmer still doesn't seem to be landing that much of a glove on him I, I think that's unfair i think um in recent months i think people even who had that view have accepted that um Keir has been landing blows uh, on him particularly in, in uh, recent weeks and months uh, as you say around the whole Partygate or Ligate um, scandal, uh, but I think there is things within that, and and that goes back to my point about Labour deserving to win. Um, so that means yes, doing proper opposition to the Conservatives, but actually setting out the ideas. I think you've seen some of that already in terms of uh, what Rachel Reeves in particular has been talking around about uh, economic policy and future economic policy, looking at how we strengthen supply chains here. Uh, in the UK, how we how we strengthen business here in the UK. So I think that is positive progress. How we win the economic argument, I think, is going to be crucial in the next election. Um, I think you'll see in uh, coming months, uh, Lisa Nandy talking about what levelling up actually means from a practical perspective, not just from a Tory slogan perspective. I should say within that, um, like we, we don't like the term levelling up because um, it's a, a, a Tory wheeze rather than actually something that's real. But actually, within that, what's the Scottish version of that? Um, when's the last time we talked about readdressing the imbalances in Scotland? M many of the uh, readers of uh, your publications, many of the listeners of your podcast, live outside the central belt of Scotland. When did the last time we talked about redistributing power, wealth, and opportunity within Scotland, away from the central belt, to the northeast, uh, to the highlands, to the island communities. Um, all these communities that feel What are your ideas for doing that? So what I want us to do, again, we'll be setting this out at conference this week, is to put economic regeneration and economic development at the heart of our future thinking. Um, I don't think we have two governments that understand economic development. Um, I think you can look at that not just how they responded to this uh, pandemic, but actually pre-pandemic. Look at the ferry infrastructure. That's a, a complete missed opportunity and letting down so many communities. Look at the Scotland project. Yes, fantastic. We've got £700 million in receipts uh, that are going to come over the next 10 years. But actually, where was the hard work done to properly economic plan so we built the companies, we built the supply chains so we could actually benefit from that project here to help bring down people's bills here Rather, we've got international, uh, foreign-owned, uh, publicly-owned, sorry, um, mm. uh, companies who are going to be investing in Scotland to bring down energy bills in their country, and we don't have the same. We're going to have all these companies now. You've sending described out some contracts of the problems here, but I was asking what your proposals. Yeah, were. exactly. So, so, so that's why I want us to do proper economic development. I want us to do proper longer-term thinking around economic development, and I want us to be interventionalist in the sense of. 
be proper energetic and enthusiastic and engaging working hand in glove with business not in competition with business to actually build the infrastructure necessary here in Scotland and that means a, a new way of thinking in terms of economic development I want that to be the heart of what we do that sounds quite vague with all due respect but what, what does that mean look like in concrete terms so, so, so I'll give you a practical example okay. um, so, so you, you can call it vague but a practical example is why aren't we setting up our own companies here in Scotland to build, to build wind turbines. If we are going to be importing thousands of wind turbines from around the world, why aren't we doing that here in Scotland? And why aren't we creating the jobs? Why aren't we joining up the dots in terms of our uh, how we teach skills in our communities for the skills that are required in individual communities? So take the Highlands and Islands as an example. Take the Western Islands as an example. We have a downgrade of the Highlands and Islands uh, University in the Western Isles. Why aren't we upgrading uh, our university there, having more engineering uh, training places in the Western Isles, and then having our own uh, company in the Western Isles that is building that support around uh, wind technology and energy, so people can go to the Western Isles, they can learn in the Western Isles, they can get their degrees in engineering, and then go and work on those very same wind farms to give us energy security, support that uh, university, support employment in that local community, and see it thrive economically. That that is not vague. That is practical examples in different parts of the country that requires government intervention. Take our airports as a good example. There's been lots of debates uh, around, obviously, climate change and the need to challenge climate change. But actually, we still want people to come and visit Scotland. We still want people to come and invest in Scotland. And we still want Scots to go abroad and sell Scotland to the world and bring an in investment into Scotland. Our airport infrastructure, look at Glasgow, has been decimated. Where is the intervention from the government to go out and fight for routes to come to uh, Scotland so we can go out and do trade with the world? That's the kind of interventionalist we, we need uh, in terms of our government to try and build our economy. You mentioned something there that has a, a tension in it, which you acknowledged about development in airports and the fight against climate change. And you also talked about the desire for economic uh, regeneration uh, and economic development out with the central belt. Now, press and journal newspaper, a lot of uh, our readers uh, and listen to this podcast, the economic powerhouse there for almost half a century has been the oil and gas industry. And there's a lot of concern about what the Labour Party's position on that would be if they were in government. Would you acknowledge that this is a difficult issue for the Labour Party and, and for, for you in particular in, in the northeast of Scotland? So I, I think this is a difficult issue for our for our politics, not just for the, for the Labour Party. But I think what where we have to differentiate is there has to be a job first transition and and the northeast is the most acute example of that and this has to be done in conjunction with and in partnership with those companies operating in the northeast rather than seeing them as the enemy or the opponent so how do we have a just transition so we can meet our climate change obligations and so we can reduce our carbon emissions and play our part in the world while also having an opportunity to to create new jobs and to protect jobs. And this again goes back to that central point about economic development. I don't want us to have this battle uh, with um, companies in the Northeast where we have a lack of investment in the Northeast. Let's work hand in glove um, with those communities to make sure they see not just the promise of the jobs in the future, let's start creating the jobs of the future right now so people have those jobs to transition uh, into. And that's where my frustration comes uh, around the lack of forward planning uh, and economic development. And 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 just again, ad addressing directly to people in the Northeast, 
there's been much debate about a windfall tax on the big energy companies. Big energy companies who are making record profits. And I've seen both SNP and Tory politicians claim that this is somehow an attack on the Northeast and the opportunities of the Northeast. What we're talking about here is people in the Northeast who are the real drivers of uh, Scotland and the UK's energy output, whose bills are also going up exponentially, who are disproportionately, if you, if you include the highlands within the, with, uh, alongside the Northeast, uh, disproportionately have higher levels of fuel poverty, their bills are also going up. And what you're seeing in return <coughs> is record profits where that money, millions of pounds, is not going into investment in the Northeast, but it's actually going into shareholders' pockets. And so we should be saying to those big companies, a one-off windfall tax uh, on the uh, excess profits being made, and for that money to go directly into the pockets of individuals, including in people in Aberdeen in the Northeast. And then let's work in partnership with Aberdeen in the Northeast to build that transition so they can see that future economic opportunity. And we do it in partnership with the oil and gas industry rather than treating them as some kind of enemy. Who's doing the Labour Party's thinking on this transition? Who's who's you, you talked about the lack of a plan? Who's 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 drafting Labour's plan for this? So Brian Wilson, who was a former energy minister in um, a previous Labour government, um, someone who has credibility with the sector, who has a, a history with the sector, is is leading our work on developing that energy transition through leading our energy transition commission and I have given Brian free reign as the person that understands uh, and has credibility with this sector and understands uh, energy. I've only set him three, a, a, a three-part frame. The first part is affordability. How do we bring down people's bills and make it more affordable for people to heat their homes and to go about their daily lives? The second part is employability, jobs. How do we not just save the jobs we currently have? How do we actually increase the number of jobs we have so there's an economic regeneration as well, not just a, a saving of, of a certain proportion of the jobs? And the third part, and this is even more crucial given what's happening now in Ukraine, is security. How do we... There's no point us shutting down our industries here in Scotland if we're just going to import the benefits of oil and gas from other parts of the world in order to keep our energy going. So how do we have our own energy security so we're self-sufficient on energy? And that means a diverse mix of energy as well. Um, and if that means nuclear being part of that mix, nuclear should be part of that mix as well. And, and just on nuclear, too often it's easy for people to try and conflate nuclear weapons as being the same as nuclear power. They're two very, very different things. And if we are true about standing up for Scotland, if we're true about looking after people here in Scotland and being self-sufficient on our energy needs, we have to be willing to think out the box. We have to be willing to be bold and ambitious. And I want the Northeast to be at the heart of that economic re regeneration, redevelopment. So are you open to nuclear power being part of the future energy mix? Absolutely. I, I, I think um, we should not be afraid to talk about a diverse energy mix and in nuclear energy being a key part of that energy mix and how that relates to economic regeneration in different parts of the country, I think is also really important. Um, so we can maximize our opportunity, maximize community benefit and maximize national security along the same way as well. Okay, just just to, before we move on on the electability and, and, the, and the Northeast, you've said that you think you can win that the next election, that you can be first minister. You've described how politics can change a lot in four years, but I don't see any route to Butte House for you that doesn't run through a resurgence in Aberdeen and a resurgence in Dundee. These were two cities that Labour had been strong in in the past and are effectively nowhere at the moment. 
Yep. How, so, how, how are you going to change that? So I, I completely agree with that, David. Um, so just like I say to Keir Starmer and the UK Labour Party, there is no route back to a UK Labour government that doesn't run through Scotland. There is no route back for a Scottish Labour government that doesn't run through the northeast of Scotland. And to be blunt, we've got to do the hard work. We've got to do the hard work of being out there in those communities, having the difficult conversations and demonstrating to them that we are going to find uh, good local candidates that they can trust and have credibility in, that we're going to have the ideas to regenerate their future. Remember, these are communities that have been promised something big and bold for the last 15 years, but actually are suffering as a consequence of a government that doesn't understand economic uh, regeneration. We haven't even spoken today about uh, public services, our NHS services, mental health services, which is obviously a huge issue across the whole of Scotland, but has disproportionate impact, particularly in Dundee, but also in wider yes. uh, northeast. I mean, we, we could speak all day um, about that, but just focusing on the economic development part is how we demonstrate to people that there's a future for them, for their families, and for their children in particular, where Scotland can punch above its weight and we can deliver for them, is the route back for us. But we've got to do the bloody hard work. Okay, thank you. I wanted to ask you something uh, a bit more personal. We did a, a podcast together just over four years ago now where we talked about your experience of racism and you, you shared some of your personal stories. Having been leader of the party for a year now, I just wondered about... Um, what your experience of that has been? Do you feel that you've experienced racism as part of your uh, job in the last year, your your, your prominent role? Um, it's it's an interesting one, David, because um, look, that was a really dark period um, of of my my life. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, and you and I have had lots of conversations both online and offline uh, about some of that dark period you, you were a uh, collateral damage at one point um, <laughs> of that as well in terms of some of the abuse and the threats that you received for for reporting uh, on some of these issues i think the last year has been interesting in that um i have uh, stepped away a lot from some of the darker sides of social media feeds um one of the joys of being in this job is you're you're kept busy a lot mm -hmm. um, so that probably means I'm, I'm kept away from the darker side of my social media feeds and you know there was there was a couple of um, examples of racist or islamophobic uh, incidences during the um, election campaign and the run-up to election campaign um, but actually you know overwhelming the overwhelming response when I've been out and about even from people that support labor but also people that don't support labor has been really warm when I've been out and about around the country and and so look, we have we have got a dark side in our country that we shouldn't be shy about talking about. We shouldn't be shy about exposing. But I think fundamentally, as a nation, um, we we still um, have a, a view where you know it doesn't matter where you come from. When you're here, you're one of us. So how we build upon that um, is really really important. But we can't be complacent. We've got still dark side in terms of racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia sexism are real in Scotland. They're, they're everyday lived experiences for thousands of our fellow citizens. And so um, whilst I've, I've got less um, in terms of time-wise to talk about these issues, um, I still care just as much, if not more, about them. And actually, I'll be talking a bit more about them um, and what we do about it at, at conference this week. I wonder, just listening to you there, it was a very dark period whenever we spoke in 2018. And I felt that you were pretty pessimistic about the situation, about the about that social media and some of the wider 
uh, social trends were making this issue worse rather than better. Do you feel more optimistic about the direction of travel now? Do you think there's been progress? Or do you think that just personally you've, you've your, your experiences of it has been better? Um, so, uh, so again, I wouldn't want to say my experiences have been better. I, I have probably adapted the way I the way I operate okay. and the way I consume, which which probably helps to to maintain my own mental health. To be honest, I think I think if I if I spent as much time looking and reading these things as I as I did before, um, mm-hmm. I probably would feel very similar to what I feel then. And obviously, you know, my kids are a certain age now, so I I, I fear for them all, all the time in terms of that level of prejudice and hate. Um, am I more optimistic now? I think I'm slightly more optimistic now. And what I mean by that is when I think about where we were four years ago, where we had to, the debate four years ago was whether it existed or not, rather than what yeah. we do about it. Mm-hmm. And I think the progress we've made, this is not progress because of me, I should stress, this is progress because of people being out there sharing their own experiences, partly because of the you know Black Lives Matter campaign um, after the murder of George Floyd and, and a number of other reasons as well. I think I think we've got past the stage of debating whether Islamophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, other forms of prejudice or hate actually exist. And we've now got into the debate about what we do about it. Um, and I think the challenge that we have is we've got to have action about what we do about it. That means how we educate in schools. It means how we operate our criminal justice system. It's about recognising that the vast majority of prejudice you still can't report to the police. It's not something someone can be charged for or prosecuted for. It's about changing the culture. It's about looking at social media. And I think there's a huge job of work still to do around responsibility from social media channels about how they report. But we have made progress, um, but there's still lots of work uh, to be done so slightly more optimistic but I tell you what I, t- I tell you where I get my optimism from I get my optimism from the fact that I think more and more people are starting to understand that you can't leave certain forms of prejudice to individual communities and you're starting to see more um, solidarity amongst communities against different forms of prejudice I think we're slowly starting to overcome the picking and the choosing. I think we're slowly starting to overcome the hierarchy of prejudice. I think where the risk lies is now that we are more all, all more conscious of it, I think now that we are all more confident in speaking about it, I think that we're all more conscious about debating it and talking about what actions need to happen, that is also an opportunity for us, but also a huge risk. And the risk comes in if we don't take the meaningful action. If meaningful action doesn't follow, then I think people will think that was a huge setback and, a, and, a, and us going back to four years and before rather than us making huge progress. And that's where let's look at our education curriculum, what we teach in our schools, and let's look at the reforms we need in our criminal justice system, like I've said, and let's clamp down on the social media giants about what they allow to amplify. or They allow far-right groups to amplify, organise, fundraise, recruit, on their social media feeds, we have got to clamp down on that in a really, really serious way. For the sake of our children, forget about us. Um, we have, we in many ways have had to, um, and when I say we, I mean, I include you in that as well, David, because you'll get it as being a, being in uh, being in public life in the sen- in the sense of journalism, either as a as a journalist before or as an editor just now, is we, we have to, in some ways, sanitize ourselves and create a new normal for ourselves to to deal with this. What it's going to mean for our children, though, I think is even more serious. Because if you think about 
and this is partly exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, if you think about it, for a lot of children, for a lot of children, if ho if home was really difficult, school was their respite. And for a lot of children, if school was really difficult, home was their respite. And I think in the advent of these, uh, our you know our phones, our um, and all the apps and and social media feeds. There is no respite. Your phone goes everywhere with you, whether it's to school, home, or anywhere else. And so the bully follows you, whether it's from home, school, or anywhere else. And what that's going to mean for people's mental health and long-term well-being, I think, is really, really serious and dangerous. Um, so for our future generations, we've got to take urgent action. Okay. Anna Sauer, thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. A pleasure speaking to you. That was Scottish Labour leader Anas Sarwar in conversation with Courier editor David Clegg. We're back next week with our regular rake over the week in Scottish politics. And we'll be chatting more then about what happens at the Labour Conference in Glasgow. Thanks to Anas Sarwar, David Clegg, producers Chris Finn and Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. Until next week, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson Media, bringing together political journalists and commentators from all over the country so that you can be better briefed. Teams at The Courier, The Press and Journal, The Evening Telegraph, Evening Express and The Sunday Post work hard day and night, online, in print and beyond, to bring you careful reporting and analysis designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, in Westminster and in our communities. So you don't miss an episode, follow The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know folk like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune into The Stushy or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. You can get a free month of unlimited access to The Courier or The Press and Journal too. Just go to thecourier.co.uk slash subscribe or pressandjournal.co.uk slash subscribe or follow the links in the episode notes to be better briefed. Check the episode notes for details and terms.